The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Financial regulators lasso Wells Fargo but let Equifax slip through its noose and Nintendo gets back in the game. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hi, Anthony. Hey, how you doing? Outgoing Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen got one parting shot on her way out the door. She took Wells Fargo to task for creating millions of fake customer accounts and clipping its wings in terms of growth. Meanwhile, the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has decided to pull back its probe of the cyber breach that occurred at Equifax for potentially exposing sensitive data of more than 140 million people. On the line from D.C. to discuss the studies in contrast is Breaking Views columnist Chris Bedore. Hi, Chris. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's chat first about Yellen's remarks. What happened last week? You were following this. Um, Wells Fargo has been in a lot of trouble. What exactly did Yellen do? Well, on essentially her last day at the office, last Friday, um, at uh, a little after 6 o'clock, the Federal Reserve made an announcement that they were essentially not going to let Wells Fargo grow in terms of its overall asset size. Um, essentially until it had cleared up his act. So there's a few stipulations, including there has to be a third-party review of their operations um, that will likely come later on in the year. Um, but it was pretty surprising because it's, it's one of the more unusual regulatory actions that you can take. It's, very, it's not every day that you see regulators just tell a company they can't, they can't grow. Okay, so I've been reading a lot about Wells Fargo thanks to you and to – Antony um, and all the columns, they've been at this trying to correct this wrong for a while now. Um, so, Antony, maybe you can explain what the, some of the steps that they've taken so far and does this really mean anything um, in well, the big scheme that, of things? That's the strange thing. And I think you know, Chris may have a slightly different opinion to me on this, but um, it's this is a bizarre time to do what the Fed's doing. So, um, the Fed hasn't actually pointed to anything as far as I can see, that Wells is now not doing or doing wrong. So it's all backward looking. So two of the four attachments they put out on the website were letters to the the previous chairman and the previous CEO for their role in screwing things up. Okay, we we know all of this. I mean, the the chairman got basically voted out by shareholders, shareholders all by the shouting last year. The CEO got kicked out within a month of this happening, or the the fake account scandal happening in 2016. And finally, the Fed, what, almost a year and a half later, decides to say something. I mean, frankly, it's another great example of regulators just being too too late and and, and too silly about it. And while she's going out the door. Well, I I, you know, I, I, I kind of like that, i got to admit. I mean, it's kind of funny. But, I mean, you know, if you're really going to come in as, a reg- as, as one of the primary regulators, don't forget the Fed regulates Wells Fargo as one of the big, systemically important financial institutions, along with, you know, the likes of Citigroup and, and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. They're in there every single day. They see what these guys are roughly planning to do. They can talk to them anytime they want. And just now they decide to do it. And, you know, Jerome Powell, who's the, the incoming chair replacing Yellen, I, he was behind a lot of the negotiations on this. So that also strikes me as odd. And we're going to get to Aquifax in a minute. You've got you know these two regulators doing almost completely different things. Um, you know the Fed's being quite heavy-handed in the way in what it's announcing. But also, it's 
you know, stopping Wells Fargo from growing is not the worst thing it could do. Wells Fargo has been struggling to grow for a couple of years. You know, its assets aren't, it's not particularly growing its assets. It's been struggling to grow its retail loans. If you could have found one thing to pick on Wells Fargo not to do, um, that wouldn't worry them as much, although it's going to cost them some money. Growing is is one of them. They they can quite happily go this year with a little bit of a hit to earnings, and not worry about it that much. Okay, Chris, I want to ask you something here, which is the Fed. At least when I'm looking at it, they, they're very secretive. They're quiet. They don't say much. Like again, Janet Yellen kind of coming out as she's leaving, saying this thing, kind of at one company, at one financial institution. The timing of it is strange. And also, I mean, is there some sort of, not that I want to insert this in here, but is there like a political thing that she's doing? Like, I still don't get like, why now and why that particular financial institution? She could have said a bazillion different things. Well, you're right that it's a very, it's a relatively secretive organization in the sense that they don't really publish a lot about kind of the inner the inner thinking behind uh, some of these decisions. But unlike Anthony, I think I kind of like what they did for a couple of reasons. Um, so the first is that this is a pretty broad brush, um, or put it this way, as we know that the Fed officials and that Wells Fargo work pretty closely together. And that there is, it's conceivable that there's space that they felt that you know, imposing X, Y, or Z requirements wouldn't really do the trick. And so this is one way, having kind of a a holistic third-party review, that's one way that you can essentially say you need to clean up your acts and we're not going to play, we're not going to even risk any kind of cat and mouse games with you, um, that you just need to kind of overhaul your, essentially your entire operations to our satisfaction. And they did acknowledge that, you know, steps had been made and so forth. But I kind of like the fact that it's it's almost a bit vague, that you just, you have to get back into our good graces, essentially. Um, and the second thing is, I, you know, Antony made a good point that, This doesn't really hurt as much as it could have in terms of the actual punitive damages. But I think that's kind of the point, that the Fed Fed finds banks all the time. This is a little bit different. It's it's almost uh, like it's weird and kind of humiliating to have the Fed tell you we're not going to fine you. We're just going to stop you from growing again. Um, And so it's almost a deterrent as well. Like you tell other banks who are not – Wells Fargo, that, hey, this is something you haven't really heard of before, but we can do it, and it doesn't really make a big difference for us because it's not really hurting consumers, um, and it's not really a risk to the financial system, but it's really embarrassing, and you're going to have to go to your shareholders and tell them what happened. I kind of, I kind of like that ambiguity almost. Well, I mean, I, 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 I kind of, I'm kind of with you on that, Chris. Although, again, this, this is something they could have done a year ago. I mean, it, this, it's taken them so long to do this. And I, I, I don't have a particular problem with the methods they're choosing. It's just it's, it's six, nine, twelve months too late. I mean, sure, maybe they don't jump in right at the start in September 2016. Although the the, the CFPB was one of the, the main agencies pushing the fine initially and and digging up all the dirt. So agencies were in there. But you know why not do this? You know, last April after the shareholders voted down a lot of the directors. I mean, this, this is this is really slow and pathetic on behalf of the Fed. Well, there's one thing I, I would like to point out too is Tim Sloan, who's the, the chief executive of Wells Fargo now. He's been there for 30 years, right? 
Yeah, not a CEO, but he's been there for 30 well, years. No, he's had, but he's been he's had a lot of senior positions. Right. So he's yeah. been with the company for a long time, including during the period of time when all this stuff was going down. Now, I'm not saying he did it or what have you, but it is strange that if you're going to have appoint somebody, a new leader, don't you think maybe you should completely think of a different person from outside the organization than bringing in a 30-year vet? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's two thoughts, schools of thought on that, right? And I think in, in general... Our line has been, look, you can't bring someone in who was, he was finance chief uh, for part of when um, the, the worst um, of the account scandal was happening. And, you know, the board already knew about it. He was COO for a while. He did actually force out the retail chief when it became clear how bad things were getting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you get someone who's been there for 30 years, you think, okay, well, how are, we, how are you showing that this is changing the culture that causes this culture goes back a long time to the 1990s, if not before, when um, the, the the two banks, Norwest and Wells Fargo, merged, and you had this real push for uh, these uh, cross sells. And Wells Fargo loved talking about how many different products it gave each customer, you know, 5.6 or 7.3, whatever the number was. It loved it, and then you know it turns out that as much as this wasn't making them much money, their sales practices meant that it was incumbent upon. Um, their, their, their bankers to try and uh, you know basically create fake accounts. So yeah, he looks like he's not quite front and center in the middle of this, but he's certainly tainted by it to some extent. On the other hand, you know, the second school of thought is, well, we need someone who knows the bank. I mean, how are you going to get an outsider to come in and know where those fiefdoms are, know where those solos are, and break it down? And to an extent, that's what he's been doing over the past year. And I think the Fed, although acknowledging what he's done. They haven't really, I don't think, given full credit to the fact that he's completely overhauled risk management. Uh, he's completely overhauled some of the processes. He's trying to break down the silos. He's trying to create a single culture, which is exceptionally difficult. I'm not saying he's succeeded yet. Um, but, you know, he may well not be the right person. And, and regardless of what I think about the Fed's timing, the stock going down 8% on the day and wiping out $26 billion of value basically tells you that shareholders are thinking, what happens next? Is he going to go? And the new chairwoman of Wells Fargo, a former Fed governor, Elizabeth Duke, has got to be thinking, if this goes on much longer, if he can't fix things quickly, or the financial targets they're sending aren't met, he's out the door. Okay, so let, let's turn to another situation here, um, where the CFPB should be acting, at least in my viewpoint, Chris, maybe you can offer some more light on this, uh, in terms of dinging Equifax, which it, it's sort of, it, it's incredibly egregious um, that a security breach that they allowed uh, potentially leaked data. I mean, social security numbers, all sorts of stuff that you have in your credit file uh, of a, more than 140 million people. And they're kind of taking a, a, a hands-off approach to this. What is going on? Right. So, I mean, this really goes back to the fact that the acting director right now, Mick Mulvaney, is a Trump appointee. Um, so a couple things to say. I mean, what Mulvaney wants to do is he, in his view, the pre, his predecessor as director of the CFPB, a guy named Richard Cordray, now running for governor of Ohio, um, he went too far. And in fact, it's probably a pretty good case. Like Mulvaney has a point that they did a lot of things under his predecessor that were relatively uh, aggressive, you could say. So like things like the the financial industry love to complain about so-called regulation through enforcement, which is uh, the CFPB would kind of decide that some sort of behavior was a bad practice, and rather than writing new rules about it and having those be enforced from now on, they would just kind of start prosecuting it and for settlements and go back retroactively. So that's what the critics allege, and even a lot of 
Democrats would kind of quietly admit in this area that he did sort of push the boundaries a little bit. So now Mulvaney sees himself as kind of retrenching and really focusing on what he sees as the CFPB's core mission. Now, what's happening with Equifax is a little bit more complex because he does have the right, Mulvaney has the right to say that they're not going to look into this, that this is better left to other regulators. So, for example, the Federal Trade Commission is already looking into it. Uh, I think every state attorneys general is right now suing Equifax over this. So it's not like it's not like if they drop it, nobody else looks at it. There's there's other agencies that step up to the plate. Um, yeah, but, but this agency, the, the agency is called Consumer Financial Protection. I mean, right. that's like it's in its name. Like you would think if there's any case to like look carefully at something, this would be it. Well, so, yeah, I think that's right. Like, I think at the very least, they need to be a little bit proactive rather than coming out via leaks to Reuters uh, that they're pulling back from this. They need to just say what exactly is in the scope of what they're going to be doing and what's not. It's, it's fair to say that their predecessor went too far, but now you have to say what's in bounds in addition to out of bounds. And I think, you know, your point about it's called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it hints at a very deep underlying structural flaw, which goes well beyond Mulvaney and any issues that liberals might have with him, which is that this is just a fundamentally very weird agency. It was given a very high degree of autonomy. It's led by a director, not a bipartisan commission. Um, it doesn't get money from Congress. Uh, so there's, it's, and most of all, it has a very wide scope. So, like, protecting consumers, I mean, that mandate is pretty broad, and it depends on how you interpret it. So, um, it's just kind of part of the it's part of the lay of the land. You can't really blame Mulvaney when this, the structure was created to just kind of ping-pong in between Democratic and Republican-leaning directors and their interpretations of it. Okay. Well, I certainly think that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has a nice name, and their mandate <laughs> should be to con protect consumers at all costs. But that's just my my take on it. So, but Chris, thank you very much for for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Now we're going to hand over the controls to our colleagues in Asia to discuss the rise of Nintendo. Hello, everyone. I'm Katrina Hamlin, production editor at Reuters Breaking Views in Hong Kong. And I'm joined here today by Quinton Webb, our Asia financial editor. Welcome to the Views Room, Quinton. Hi, Katrina. Um, you've been following Japan Inc. this week, including Nintendo. That's right. Um, a lot of results out this week and in the next couple of weeks from Japanese corporations, including Nomura, many of the Japanese banks and car companies. But um, today, I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about Nintendo's results. Mm. Um, two years ago, Nintendo was worth $16 billion dollars. Now it's worth more than $50 billion. What's going on? Well, effectively, um, everyone was very depressed about Nintendo a couple of years ago. Uh, they had a flagship console, the Wii U, which really did not do very well. It didn't sell very well, wasn't very popular. Um, and in the last few months, they have launched a new hybrid console called the Switch, which you can play at home, plugged into a television, or on the move as a sort of portable console and that is going gangbusters and so the mood around Nintendo has changed dramatically. Aren't consoles a little bit old hat in the era of smartphone games? Isn't everyone just playing Candy Crush? That's a great question. Uh, you would have thought so because if you sit on the subway you see everyone playing games of one sort or another and of course these are free or very cheap to download. Effectively smartphones are very powerful 
computers available in everyone's pocket. Um, but there is still a very sizable proportion of people who are willing to pay for games hardware and the sort of immersive experience that you only get when you have an Xbox or a PlayStation 4 or a Nintendo Switch. But uh, the console business must have changed in recent years. Are players still buying cartridges from gaming shops? That feels a bit old school. That's right. Um, so people are still buying physical games to go with consoles. So the best-selling game for the Switch so far is the first Super Mario title to be introduced for the Switch, which is Super Mario Odyssey. And that costs $60 from a gaming store or some other outlet. But increasingly, you can also buy things online. So you can buy games themselves online or you can buy add-ons for existing games um, and that actually is a super interesting development for the console makers because it means much higher margins for them in the era where you had to sort of ship cd-roms or cartridges in nintendo's case to stores um, you had to give up a lot more margin in the process now you can actually have a much more lucrative way of connecting gamers with new games or new content. Um, you actually argue in your recent piece that Nintendo is more like Apple than Sony. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I think there's an interesting idea here, which is that some companies or some big companies are very broad and diverse in what they do. So if we think about Sony, which is another Japanese company which has undergone an impressive turnaround, Sony is a very diverse business. So it is one of the world's biggest record labels effectively it's one it owns one of the world's major movie studios um it's had enormous success making cmos chips which go in smartphones and are useful for um cameras um it makes its own slr cameras or high-end kind of photographic equipment um it also insists on making handsets too which is a rather baffling business to remain in but it does all of these things so while the PlayStation 4, Sony's flagship console, has been a big success in the last few years. Sony's fortunes don't really rise and fall depending on the success of that console. And that's quite a kind of dramatic difference with Nintendo, which I say is a lot more like Apple, where for all of the talk about iPads or the computers that Apple sells, really the most significant thing about Apple that everyone needs to know is are people still buying the iPhone? Uh, in a similar way, people need to know, are Nintendo customers still buying the new consoles? And that matters twofold, because you start with the console. People talk about this a bit like a kind of razor blade model. So famously, razor blade companies sell the, the razors cheaply and then sell the blades at a very high margin. So you start by selling the console for $300. You don't make a huge margin on that. And then you sell games over maybe five, seven, eight years to players of that console. And that's where you really reap the reward. Uh, people are now saying that um, the Nintendo Switch could, at its peak, sell more than 30 million units a year, which would make it the best-selling console on an annual basis of all time, beating the original Wii, which is a big hit, and beating earlier PlayStations. So everything is great for Nintendo investors, then? Well, I, th I think if you've held... Nintendo stock for the last couple of years, you'd be pretty pleased. Um, that's not to say there aren't things that couldn't be better. Uh, one thing is that Nintendo, like many other Japanese companies, insists on hoarding lots of cash. It has billions of dollars on its balance sheet. 
uh, I reckon if it continues to pile up cash, it should start thinking about giving some of that back to shareholders through a special dividend, for example. Um, the other thing is that in the lean years, people were worried that Nintendo wasn't making the most of other avenues. So it hadn't really engaged with smartphones and it hadn't really made the most of its incredible intellectual property portfolio. If you think of a character like Super Mario, he's so famous that at one point Prime Minister Shinzo Abe dressed up as this kind of cartoon plumber. And yet Nintendo wasn't really making as much of Mario as Disney does with all of the Star Wars characters or with the many other characters in its stable. Uh, in recent years, we've seen some progress on both of these things. So Nintendo has dipped its foot into the kind of smartphone gaming market, not um, done a lot there, but has a few titles now. And that doesn't seem to be cannibalizing console sales. It's instead maybe kind of bringing Nintendo characters to a broader audience. And they are doing a bit more with the intellectual property too. So, uh, you know, there's more kind of Nintendo in theme parks, for example, and there's a new animated Mario film coming. But as I argue in my piece, I think really Nintendo rises or falls on the strength of the console. And at the moment, that's going really well. Well, thank you so much, Quentin. Thanks. Goodbye. That's our show for this week. We'd like to thank all our guests, Chris Bedor, Katrina Hanman and Quentin Webb, and hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.